Well, I grew up watching the Magic School Bus. And with today's message, I feel a little bit like Miss Frizzle because we're going to go on a bit of a wild ride. For those of you unfamiliar with the Magic School Bus, it was an animated children's show on PBS. And each week, Miss Frizzle and her class would climb aboard the Magic School Bus to go on a knowledge-filled, adventure-style field trip. Now, uh, while I was watching the show, you realized that the machine was quite capable. It was capable of time travel, space travel, and it could transform into just about anything. The magic school bus dived into everything from a volcano to a pickle jar and transformed into everything from a star to a dinosaur. Whatever was needed to take the class on a memorable field trip. And today's going to be a little bit like that because as we dive into the middle of the book of Isaiah, we're going to be jumping between timelines, locations, and cultures. In our text today, Isaiah rapidly jumps back and forth between current events in Judah and Israel, near-term prophecy of deliverance and judgment, as well as end-times prophecy of deliverance and judgment, and references to the Millennial Kingdom. And at the same time that all that is going on, it has a special importance to us today as believers. So hop on the magic school bus with me, and we're going to begin our journey in Isaiah chapter 28. But we'll start with the flyover. If you need a Bible, feel free to raise your hand. Bud would be happy to help you out. I'd recommend it. You might need something to hold on to. We'll start a flyover uh, of Isaiah and the characteristics of his book. Written by Isaiah, son of Amos, we find that in chapter 1, verse 1. The name Isaiah means Yahweh is salvation, which is fitting because even though the majority of this book, chapters 1 through 39, center around judgment, Isaiah's message to the southern tribe of Judah that he was writing to was that they should trust in the God who promised them a glorious kingdom through Moses and David. Isaiah's primary purpose was to remind his readers the special relationship they had with God as members of the nation of Israel, his covenant community, his chosen people. Isaiah spoke more than any other prophet about the great kingdom into which Israel would enter upon the second coming of Christ. We call that the millennial kingdom. So although judgment seems to be the emphasis in the first 39 chapters, the last 26 chapters, salvation and comfort are the two most prominent themes. Those are certainly not absent from the first two-thirds of the book. But this duality between judgment and salvation is interesting to note because it characterizes the book as a whole, but it's echoed very explicitly in the text we're going to cover today. Time and time again, we're going to see judgment on one hand and salvation and deliverance on the other hand. Each principle that we cover, each stop that our bus makes along the way, we're going to look at both sides of the coin. On one hand this, and on the other hand this. Our trip today is going to be a dive into a six-chapter section of Isaiah known as the Woes. Chapters 28 through 33. So let's pull the bus up to the beginning of chapter 28. We'll start in verse 1. The first woe. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower which is at the head of the verdant valleys. 
To those who are overcome with wine, behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth with his hand? The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, will be trampled underfoot. Now, if we summarize that, we could just say judgment is coming. And we're going to have to summarize a lot this evening if we're going to make it to Woe 6 in chapter 33, so bear with me. Anytime that we skip text, it's most often Isaiah saying the same thing he just said in a different way. Or it's him saying something he's already said. Or it's him saying something he will say again later and we'll cover it then. But the first thing we should note, this woe in verse 1 was given to Ephraim. Now, Ephraim was the major tribe in the north, and it's used here as a stand-in for the entire northern kingdom during this period where Israel was divided. But we said earlier that Isaiah was writing to Judah in the south. So why is this even in here? Well, the reason is simple. Isaiah is saying, learn from the mistakes of others. He's writing to Judah in the south, but he's pointing out the failures of the northern kingdom. Failures and the resulting judgments that his audience in the South was going to watch play out in real time. Because when it came to spiritual decline, the North was headed down much faster than the South. But this concept is also important to us as we study this 2,700-year-old book. We, too, can learn from the mistakes of others. Our idols might not be gold and silver. Our source of intoxication might not be wine and drink, hashtag social media, hashtag vote 420, pick your poison. But we should see our idolatry. We should see our waywardness even now as New Testament believers when we look back at the Israelites in the Old Testament because we have the same sin nature. You see, the nature of sin never changes, only the presentation. Now, here's where things are going to get more interesting. Yes, we have the same sin nature as the Israelites. We'll read about this evening, this morning. I've been doing that Saturday evening. is messing me up. But we have the same sin nature as the Israelites. But one thing we don't have that the Israelites did not have is the forgiveness of sins through Christ's sacrifice on the cross and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that comes when we accept that sacrifice. So, in our text, when Isaiah speaks of deliverance and salvation, of rest and comfort to his audience in Judah, he's most often speaking of the millennial kingdom. He's speaking prophetically of that still coming thousand-year reign following the second coming of Christ. But... And this is a big but. This is a very important but. If we're going to get everything our text has to say to us here today, what will be true for Israel in the millennial kingdom can be true for us today as believers. And remember, Isaiah talks about the millennial kingdom more than any other prophet. I'll say it again. What will be true for Israel in the millennial kingdom can be true for us today as believers. All right, so we'll hop in the bus, and we're going to go to chapter 28, verse 9. Whom will he teach knowledge, and whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk, those just drawn from the breasts, 
For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Well, here in these two verses, we see the people of Ephraim mocking Isaiah for the message he was giving them. They're in, in essence saying, you're talking to us like children. We don't want to hear it. We're above that. We're beyond that. This little by little reference was referring to a common method of teaching children in that day. You would give them just a little bit at a time, one thing at a time. The people of Ephraim rejecting Isaiah's message are saying, don't talk to us like we're children. Don't talk to us like we don't know any better. So then the Lord says, if you won't listen to my prophets, I have other ways of communicating. In verse 11, God says, for with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people. God says, we tried one way, and that was unsuccessful. So now I'll talk to you with the Assyrian army. When the Lord says, I will speak to this people through stammering lips and another tongue, that was God saying, now you wouldn't listen to instruction through my prophets. Perhaps you will listen to destruction by a foreign army. The Assyrian army eventually overtook the northern kingdom in 722. But verse 14, verse 14 says, It doesn't have to be this way for you, Judah. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Jerusalem being the capital of the southern kingdom. So you'll find that that is often used interchangeably to refer to everyone in the south. But Isaiah just shifted focus. He pronounced a woe on Ephraim, but now he says, but it, it's gonna be, it can be different for you, Judah. Learn from the mistakes of others. You saw how it went for Ephraim. Now here is your other option. Hear the word of the Lord and hear it now. But in verse 15, Judah says, no thanks. We don't want to listen either. So verses 16 through 22 go on to speak prophetically of the judgment, also from a foreign nation first Assyria, and then Babylon that awaits them. But then in verse 23, continuing through 29, Isaiah inserts a word of comfort. Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my speech. Does the plowman keep plowing all day to sow? Does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods? When he has leveled its surface, does he not sow the black cumin and scatter the cumin, plant the wheat in rows, the barley in its appointed place, and the spelt in its place? For he instructs him in right judgment. His God teaches him. For the black cumin is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over the cumin, but the black cumin is beaten out with a stick and the cumin with a rod. Bread flour must be ground, therefore he does not thresh it forever. Break it with his cartwheel or crush it with his horsemen. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. So this encouragement from Isaiah is his saying, all right, have it your way, there will be judgment. But I want you to know that this judgment is not going to last for forever. It's just designed to purge this people. Yes, God, the farmer, must crush his people, the crops, in order to get the desired result. But this step isn't going to last forever. It's only one of the many parts of the farming process. And he treats each crop differently according to what's needed. He's wonderful in counsel 
and magnificent in wisdom. It might not be fun now, but he knows what he's doing. So having looked at all that, there's one principle we should take away from this first woe. It was the principle that God was trying to teach the Israelites, a teaching they wouldn't receive, but we can learn from their mistakes. We can accept the principle that they rejected, and that principle is trust the purposes of God. If you're taking notes, you can jot that down. Principle one, trust the purposes of God. Now we're going to get back into the bus, and I want you to look out the windows as we come up upon the fourth woe in this section. You'll find that in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 1. Now we're jumping to the fourth woe, not just because we're in a magic school bus and we can, but because woe four is a response to the principle we just found in the first woe. And we'll see this repeated twice more the relation between a principle in woe two and a response in woe five, a principle in woe three and a response in woe six. But now we'll turn to woe four in Isaiah chapter 30, verse one. Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel but not of me, and who devise plans but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. Go down to verse 12. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perversity and rely on them, therefore, this iniquity shall be like a breach ready to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. Well, you see, here we have a picture of what happens when you're faithless, when you don't trust in the purposes of God. Verse 12 says, they despised this word. They trusted not in the purposes of the Lord, but in oppression and perversity. Here on one hand, we see that if you do not trust the word and purposes of the Lord, that will be the cause of your destruction. Verse 13 says, the iniquity, the evil, the wickedness that you pursued, that you trusted in, will be like a wall that you built up. And that wall will be the one that falls and crushes you. It's said another way in verse 15 and 16, for thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. Come back to me. But you would not. And you said, no, we, for we will flee on horses. Therefore you shall flee. And we will ride on swift horses. Therefore those who pursue you shall be swift. So here on that same hand of faithlessness, we see that you can't run from the Lord. But here on the other hand, we'll see that you can run to him. Isaiah covers this other side of the coin as he speaks to Judah about the yet future millennial kingdom. But remember, what will be true for Israel in the millennial kingdom can be true for us today. So look at verse 18 of chapter 30. Therefore, the Lord will wait, that he may be gracious to you, and therefore he will be exalted, that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Verse 23, then he will give the rain for your seed with which you sow the ground, and bread of the increase of the earth. It will be fat and plentiful. In that day your cattle will feed in large pastures, likewise the oxen and the young donkeys that work the ground will eat cured fodder, which has been winnowed with the shovel and the fan. 
So in response to this principle of woe one, trust the purposes of the Lord. Woe four gives us an example. On the one hand, this. On the other hand, this. On the one hand, faithlessness. On the other hand, faithfulness. On the one hand, a picture of a collapsing wall constructed of your own iniquity. On the other hand, a picture of a fruitful field, rich and full of everything that you need. So now we get back on the bus. We're going to head up to verse 1 of chapter 29. We're going to get a second principle out of the second woe. Now as we look to the second woe, it's almost as if God can hear the heart of the doubter, saying, all right, God, here I am in Judah, and I want to trust your purposes, but what about this situation? What about this army? What about this thing that we're facing? Maybe for us today it would sound something like, God, what about this person? What about 2021? I want to trust your purposes, but Lord, surely this is too big. This is too far gone. This is too broken. This is too big even for God. But then God, responding to a doubting Judah or to a doubting believer here today, running away with that line of thought in the face of adversity, again says, whoa, nothing is too hard for the Lord. That's our second principle. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. And we'll see this twice in this chapter. Verses 1 through 8 prophesy of the event later detailed in chapter 37 of the book of Isaiah. When the Assyrian army had surrounded Jerusalem and defeat seemed imminent. We read in verse 1, Woe to Ariel. Ariel translated from the Hebrew uh, Lion of God. That's the city of Jerusalem. Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add year to year, let feasts come around, yet I will distress Ariel. There shall be heaviness and sorrow. I will encamp against you all around. I will raise siege works against you. Verse 4, you shall be brought down. But no circumstance is too hard for the Lord. Not even this soon arriving, impending doom that Isaiah is prophesying over the city of Jerusalem. Uh, uh, a prophecy that many of those reading this scroll in that day would experience firsthand. The amount of time between when this was written and when this occurred in 701 BC was very short. But verses 5 through 8 detail the Lord's 11th hour deliverance of the city of Jerusalem by his own hand. Verse 5. Moreover, the multitude of your foes shall be like fine dust, and the multitude of the terrible ones like chaff that passes away. Yes, it shall be in an instant. Suddenly, you, we can read they here, the attacking army, you will be punished by the Lord of hosts with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. Now again, I encourage you to read this whole story played out in chapter 37, but the point is nothing is too hard for the Lord. And he's about to give Judah a very real and very powerful example of how God is not limited by adverse circumstances. That's sort of a sub-point. If nothing is too hard for the Lord, sub-point one would be no circumstances. Sub-point two would be, uh, I'm sorry, no circumstantial issues. Sub-point two would be no spiritual issues are two for the Lord. We see that beginning in verse 9. Pause and wonder. Blind yourselves and be blind. 
They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. For the Lord has poured on you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets. He has covered your heads, namely the seers. Verse 13, therefore the Lord said, inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. So I hope here you see that spiritually speaking, Judah is in a very, very bad place. One you might suppose cannot be overcome. Surely this is too much. This situation is too broken. These people are too far gone. But then we see verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work amongst this people, a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. There's no spiritual situation that's too hard for the Lord to overcome. The wisdom and understanding of men will die and be hidden, that the wisdom of the Lord might reign and be exalted again. There's no blindness, no deafness, no hard-heartedness that the Lord cannot look upon and say, I will again do a wonder and a marvelous work amongst these people. Principle number two, nothing is too hard for the Lord. No circumstances, no spiritual condition. So now we're going to get back in the bus, travel down to Woe 5 in chapter 31, verse 1, for a response to this principle we just found. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Isaiah 33, verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. Yet he also is wise and will bring disaster, and will not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of those who work iniquity. So if nothing is too hard for the Lord, we see detailed here the peril and the danger of looking elsewhere for help. Here on one hand, we see a situation that this type of behavior, this not trusting in the power of the Lord will bring about. We see this elaborated in verses 12 and 13. People shall mourn upon their breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful, for the fruitful vine. On the land of my people will come up thorns and briars, yes, on all the happy homes in the joyous city. So not only do we fail to succeed apart from his power, but refusal to acknowledge the completeness of his sovereign reach will unravel any of the seemingly good that there was. There's no secondary relief. There's no change in tactic apart from God that will fix what is broken. Judah, in this time, if we look at it historically, they thought that that change in tactic, that change in approach, was an alliance with Egypt. But it was utterly fruitless, it failed. And they failed. But we have this duality of responses. We saw on the one hand what happens when you trust in a lesser power. A change in tactic apart from the Lord. Some new system you think will be your solution. Some failing alliance. But now on the other hand, we're going to see in verses 6 and 7, when we trust that nothing is too hard for the Lord, God makes all things new. Verse 6, return to him against whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. 
For in that day every man shall throw away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, sin which your own hands have made for yourselves. You see, when we cling to God in times of distress, we naturally let go of everything else. All those idols, all those things that were taking God's place in order to seek Him in the face of adversity and cling to Him, we have to let go of those, and it has beautiful consequences. We see those consequences in verse 8. Then Assyria shall fall by a sword not of man, and a sword not of mankind shall devour him, but he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall become forced labor. When we trust that nothing is too hard from the Lord, when we're facing a situation like Jerusalem faced when they were surrounded by the Assyrians, when we look to God for power and we don't look anywhere else, it's then that our greatest battles become victories. And those victories are not by our cunning, they're not by our strength, they're not by our revelation, but they're by the power of God. Because when the Lord delivered Israel, He didn't do it through their military might. He sent the angel of the Lord. Then suddenly, in an instant, what they thought was going to be their coming destruction, out of that they snatched deliverance by the power of the Lord. Principle two, nothing is too hard for the Lord. This response in chapter, or I'm sorry, in Woe 5 really challenges us to vote with our feet. Do we think that nothing is too hard from the Lord? Is that a nice thing to tell ourselves when we're not feeling too good? Or do we believe it? Do we walk in that? Are we living that out with our choices? When we're faced with adversity, do we try and technique ourselves out of the old situation? Do we just want to find that thing that will fix this because it might be a little too big for God? Or are we trusting that the Lord in His strength makes all things new? Because nothing is too hard for the Lord. Alright, our second to last trip, we're going to jump back in the bus and go up to Woe 3 for our third principle. Chapter 29, verse 15. So the first woe said, trust the purposes of the Lord. And woe too said, you can do this because nothing is too hard for the Lord, circumstantial or spiritual. But it leaves us with the question of, of why. When, when we look at Israel, when we look at ourselves, we can say, okay, God, I understand you have a purpose. And I understand that nothing is beyond your power. Nothing is too hard. But if you can do anything, why like this? Why this way? We find the answer in the third woe. Verse 15 of chapter 29. Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord, and their works are in the dark. They say, who sees us and who knows us? Surely you have turned things around. Shall the potter be as esteemed as the clay? For shall the thing made say of him who made it? He did not make me. Or shall the thing formed save him who formed it? He has no understanding. Here we see a picture of the true spiritual reality that's been flipped completely upside down. The reality is God is God and we are not, but here we see a rejection of that truth. It's absurd as a fashioned clay pot looking upon its maker and saying, you know nothing of the thing that you just made. It's as absurd as those who think that they can hide from God. 
Isaiah was actually referencing those in his day that would do evil under the cover of darkness, thinking they were actually hiding their sin and their actions from God. It's a sad situation when we think we can hide from the Lord, a nearly hopeless condition, one we see often and one each of us lived personally, at least for a time. But God says, wait. Verse 17. Is it not yet a very little while till Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field? And the fruitful field be as esteemed as a forest? In that day the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. For the terrible one is brought to nothing, the scornful one is consumed, and all who watch for iniquity are cut off. The God in whom we trust, the God in whom Israel will trust, says, I have a purpose, I have my ways, and I will reach my end goal. Sorry, that is bugging me. I'm sure it's bugging you. What at the time may seem like cruel and unusual punishment, God sees as a necessary step between where he found you, between where he found Israel, and the journey of spiritual transformation that he's taking us on. Whenever we ask, why me, why now? God says, I have a purpose. Whenever we look in the face of adversity and we say, really, Lord? Even this? God says, nothing is too hard for the Lord. I'm the God of 11th hour deliverance. I'm a God who opens the eyes of the blind. And when we say, well, why did you do all this? Why did you have to do it this way? Woe three answers very clearly that it's all for the end goal of spiritual transformation. It may happen in a moment. It may happen over a decade. In Israel's case, it's going to take millennia, but it's all to the end goal of spiritual transformation. That's our third principle. We are in the middle of spiritual transformation. So let's go to Isaiah 33, verse 1 for woe number six and our final response to the principle we just looked at. We are in the middle of a spiritual transformation. 33 verse one. Woe to you who plunder, though you have not been plundered, and you who deal treacherously, though they have not dealt treacherously with you. When you cease plundering, you will be plundered. When you make an end of dealing treacherously, they will deal treacherously with you. Verse nine. The earth mourns and languishes, Lebanon is shamed and shriveled. Sharon is like a wilderness, and Bashan and Carmel shake off their fruits. Now, Sharon, Bashan, and Carmel here were all very fertile lands in that day, but the Lord says that may be the case now, but it won't be that way forever. Oftentimes, we feel like the evil prosper, and the righteous are persecuted, and this may be true in a snapshot, but it's not the case when we look at the story as a whole. You see, on the one hand, we have the reality of our experience. But we contrast that with these following verses. Verse 2, O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their arm every morning. Our salvation also in the time of trouble. Verse 17, Your eyes will see the king and his beauty. They will see the land that is very far off. Your heart will meditate on terror. Where is the scribe? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? 
you will not see a fierce people, a people of obscure speech beyond perception, of a stammering tongue that you cannot understand. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. None of its stakes will ever be removed, nor will any of its cords be broken. So on the one hand, we have the reality of our experience. But on the other hand, we have the reality of our eternity. And the moral of the story is in the game of spiritual transformation, it's not over until it's over. It's not over until we're home. Those that perpetrated evil, they will get what's coming to them. But those who find righteousness in the Lord, so will we. It paved along Israel, <clears throat> paved along Israel's path of spiritual transformation was evil and wrong done to them by the Babylonians and the Assyrians. Perhaps paved along our path of spiritual transformation was evil and wrong done to us by those inside and outside the church. Something that seemed to go unpunished, ignored. A situation, a death, a sickness, an illness, a health issue that seemed to just be perpetrated upon us like it was God's pawn on the way to God's ultimate end. But God says, let it play out. It's not over until it's over. It's not over for Israel until the millennial kingdom, and it's not going to be over for us until heaven. We are in the middle of of spiritual transformation and on one hand we have our current experience but on the other hand we have our coming reality our coming eternity so that's it six woes three principles and three responses it was isaiah speaking specifically to judah to the southern kingdom about what was facing them and the duality of outcomes that would unfold. The current reality of coming judgment and the future reality of eternal rest and reward. But as believers, when we look to this, we don't have to wait for God's deliverance. Israel has to wait. It's one of the many reasons we pray for her. She's still in God's hand. She is being worked out. But today, if you're here, if you're in Christ, if you're a believer, we're not in God's outstretched hand. We've already been brought near to his chest. Everything that God is preparing for Israel in the millennial kingdom can be within our reach today as believers. And if it doesn't feel that way for you right now, if that's not your experience, I want to give you a word of encouragement. I want to encourage you like God encouraged Israel at the end of chapter 28. You see, God's a farmer. And he knows what he's doing. God is working on your crop. And he treats each crop differently because he knows what's best. How much time do we waste looking at a neighboring field saying, Man, I wish God farmed me like that plot of land. That plot of land looks like they're having a lot more fun, doing a lot better than me. God must not know what he's doing. He is going to bring about fruit from your life. And that's true even if right now it might seem like you're in a season of plowing. It's been a long and cold winter. You look out on the field of your life and you see nothing but a barren field. The dirt is hard and compact. 
your experience, what the Lord is doing in your life is a stiff iron plow being driven into the soil and pulled through, pulling up new earth. It's not a fun time to be a believer. None of us like to be that field that's getting plowed. And sometimes there's just one area of our field that's getting plowed. It might be good over here, but there might be this area of pain where the Lord is driving that plow deep into the soil of your heart and he's turning it over and he's pulling out that new earth. And then you see the plow get put away. You say, okay, good, we've, we finally made it. It's going to be better. But then the Lord walks out and he looks and there's still large chunks of dirt that he has to go around and break up one by one. And he levels the ground. And after you've been through all this, after the Lord puts away that harsh tool of the plow, the ground has been broken up, it's been leveled. The next step is planting. So what tool does the Lord use? He uses his own hand, gently walking along the rows, pushing each seed to the proper depth. Oh, what a wonderful experience this is. It's refreshing. It's endearing. It's warm, so close to our Savior. Nothing in between us as he plants things deep within our heart. But then the planting is done, and we look around. There's no farmer. And we look at the field, and there's no crops. Well, what's happening? We're just waiting. We're just waiting. What are we waiting for? We're waiting on rain. We're waiting on rain, and it's rain that only God can send. Now, when that rain comes, then it sprouts. Not long after that, we have a field full of wheat. We look out, oh, the smile on our face. Harvest time is a time to party. You should be excited as you look out and see what God the farmer has done in your life. We haven't seen this in the, future, in the history of Israel, but we will see it in the future. We will see Israel as a field full of wheat. It's not there yet. But as believers, we're there. A field full of wheat. You think, okay, I've made it. No more plowing. No more breaking up the clods. This is great. But then that wheat needs to be cut down. It needs to be harvested. It needs to be harvested and it needs to be set on the threshing floor. A stone circle where oxen will walk around in circles dragging these thick, heavy beams, these threshing sledges that will tear up, separate the wheat from the chaff. The chaff will be removed and there we are in a basket we think, all right, that was, that was the last hard thing. That was, that was tough. I didn't think I was going to make it. But we've just gotten picked up off the ground. There's little pebbles mixed in with all that wheat. So God shakes it in a sieve. We say, hey, okay, this isn't my favorite, but it's better than the plow. And he shakes out those pebbles. And there we are, 
we look at the fruit of the field of our lives and it's pure, unadulterated, uncontaminated wheat. But then we realize that even that wheat, even that wheat in that form needs to be ground before it can be used. You see, the encouragement is this. No matter where you are in that process, and chances are different parts of your life are in different parts of that process, God knows what He's doing. Trust His purposes. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Because we're not concluding a spiritual trans transformation. We are in the middle. Hang in there, saints. Rejoice in those times where there is a ripe, rich harvest. But stay true and know that it's only the beginning of the process when the Lord touches a part of your heart that is hard ground and needs to be plowed up. And when it feels like God isn't there, you look around and you can't see Him. There's this season of waiting. Pray for rain. Be dependent. The Lord will bring it. We see how many times did He use that imagery that He will bring rain upon the seed, that the land will be rich, that it will be full, that it will have everything we need. 2020 has been a year, but they're all years. 2021 might be harder than 2020, and 2022 might be harder than both of them put together. But the reality is this. God is a farmer. He knows what he's doing. He has his purposes, and it's not over until it's over. It's not over until we're home and we're face-to-face -face with the Lord. Keep that close to your heart. Remember this message from Isaiah. Anytime we look to Jerusalem, be reminded that the work that God is doing in them has already been done for us. And praise God for that. Lord, we do praise you for that. We thank you. Father, that, that you would adopt, that you would purchase this wretched land of our hearts, that you would wash it clean with the blood of your Son. And that, Father, because you care, because you love, you're going to go to that effort of turning that old, useless soil purchased and redeemed and cleaned into a, a field, a field that will produce rich fruit. Lord, that is our desire. And so often as we undertake that process, and as we undertake that process again and again and again, year after year, season after season, we can be distracted, we can be discouraged by the experience of our reality. So, Lord, let heaven be palpable to us. Let us see that in our brothers and in our sisters in Christ. Let us see that in your word. Lord, that we would bring the heavenlies down. That as Israel looks forward to the millennial kingdom, Father, that we would make her jealous as we live empowered by your spirit with your strength, to your glory, Father. And we pray this in your Son's name. Amen.